We're going to be in First uh, John chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, and we're continuing this series today on the character of God. And uh, over the month of October, we'll be looking at kind of the scriptural perspective of who God is and uh, why we need to understand who he is. Because we talked about last week, it's easy for us as individuals to judge people uh, either by first impressions or maybe information we get from other people, and we come up with this perspective of who they are without ever really meeting them. And we do the same thing with God, that we get this idea of, well, you know, if I was God, I would do this, or this person told me about their encounter with God, and so I'm going to base it off of that. And so we take kind of one picture of God, and we create this whole persona of who he is. And, uh, and that's kind of actually a dangerous thing to do because what we end up doing is we creating we end up creating a God in our own image versus remembering that we are creations of God in his image. So we make ourselves primary and him secondary instead of the other way of remembering that he is primary and we are secondary. And if we went around this room this morning uh, and we said, hey, describe God in one or two words, we would have a lot of different pieces of this puzzle. And uh, even probably here, we might not get the complete picture of who God is. I remember growing up, I used to love to put together puzzles, like 500-piece puzzles, 1,000-piece puzzles. I just loved doing those things. And I would, you know, I'd ask for hard ones, and my parents sometimes would give me one that were like all a solid color or lots of different, you know. And I would sit there and do them. I was that kind of kid. I was that weird kid. But I remember the hardest puzzle I ever put together happened to be when we uh, spilled two boxes together of two different puzzles and when we gathered them back up I'm like we don't know which pieces go with which puzzle and so we're trying it was hard enough to put a puzzle together when you know the end product and you know these pieces go in there but it was a thousand times more difficult to try to put a puzzle together if you weren't sure if this piece was even a part of this puzzle and sometimes we do that with our view of God. We've got pieces from all different parts of our experience with God, and we think, you know what, this must fit here, when actually it's not even really who God is. It's not who God has revealed himself to be. And so we talked about where do we go to get this truth. And we said as people who are pursuing and learning about what it means to be a follower of Christ that we're going to see God's word in the Bible and the scriptures as God's revealed character and nature, that we're going to say we can see who God is through the Bible and how he interacted with mankind, how he has revealed himself through history, and specifically in the book of First John that we talked about last week is this culmination of the study of who God is. It's one of the last books written in the Bible, and it was kind of this last picture of God. And so that's where we're moving toward this week, and uh, we're going to keep over the next few weeks looking at different characteristics. And you know, this idea of creating God in our own image is certainly not a new trend. It's not something that just happens in this culture. It has happened throughout history, right? I mean, you think about it. When we look back at history, we see many times that individuals, religious groups, nations, and people groups of all things have done things in the name of God. They've done horrible things in the name of God because they've taken their, their idea of God and created their own image of it. You know, you think back to the Crusades of like, hey, we're going to force our religion on you, and if you're not, we're going to kill you. You know, that, that's not scriptural. You think back to even, even, you know, early Catholic Church used to sell indulgences. Like, you want to sin? That's fine. Just pay us some money, and then you can get away with it. Like, that was a practice, like profiting off of sin. You know, that's just not 
biblical. You go back to the idea of slavery that we would, you know, in our early history, we justified that from a biblical perspective. We were trying to justify sin by saying this is how God views a group of people. And that's just sinful. It's not even a part of scripture. And you even, you know, today we have a lot of legalism sometimes and saying, if you follow God, you got to do these five things or do these 10 things. And that's just not the idea of God in the Bible. So we have to be very careful that we paint a clear picture and have a proper view of God. And so last week we looked at the idea that God was luminous this bright, unquenchable light that reveals truth and draws people to him. And if uh, if you didn't hear that one, you can catch it online and go back and because it lays the groundwork for this series. But today we're going to look at a new and uh, the next characteristics of God rev, uh, revealed in First John. So if you got your Bibles, look at John two, First John two twenty nine. And so we're going to look at kind of the last passage in this chapter. Then we're going to go back and see how we get to this conclusion that he is here. And here's what it says in verse twenty nine. It says, "If you know that he is righteous." you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so what we're looking today is this idea that God is righteous. Now that's a word, that's a biblical word, that's a word in the 70s, I think, that used to be referred to something that was cool, I think. John, do you remember? (laughs) Uh, You know, but it's one of these ideas that, you know, God is righteous. We hear that, but what does that mean? Like, does it just mean that, like, he, you know, he makes right decisions. He's a good person, you know, trying to equate, you know, these human qualities to God. And what we're going to see as we go back and look at this second half of chapter two is John takes this and he creates an argument for what righteousness is. And righteousness is basically we're going to see three characteristics of God. And so let's look at the first one. If you go back to verse 15 through 17, and this is what it says, it says, do not love the world. Are the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. And so what we see here at the very beginning is this idea that contrasting the world versus God. And it's this idea you've got to put your hope in one of these two places. And if you put your hope in God, you understand this thing about him. Righteousness means that he is complete. He is our complete satisfaction. Everything you need is in him. Now, when I first hear this passage, it's kind of a downer passage, right? Like, do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. It focuses on these ideas of the do nots. Like, I've heard this message taught in such a way before that, It basically challenges Christians to run away from the world. Stay away from those people that might be a bad influence on you. Stay away from the sinners so you don't get dirty like they are. It equates righteousness to behavior. Just behave better and avoid people that with bad behavior and you'll please God. This kind of thinking can get us into trouble because it certainly doesn't line up with the whole of Scripture and it certainly doesn't line up with how Jesus interacted with people on this earth, right? I mean, think about it. If that was what this passage was saying, like, go find a private island and create Christian nation. And once you're a Christian, you can be admitted to that island. If that was the passage, you know, why didn't Jesus do that? Why didn't Jesus just, you know, when he show up, create an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea and say, followers, come here. 
leave what you and come to me and then we'll just hide out here and when everybody's here we'll leave. That's not what he's what did he do? He went to the dark, dangerous places of this world. He went where sin was rampant. He went to places that needed light. And that's kind of what he's laying out here is this idea that we're not called to hate the world or the people of the world. It is instead a call not to make the world of the thing or the things of this world of the people of this world your God. That's what he's saying here. And it's, it's not that you have to hate everything of this world. Like you have to completely say, I love God, and so I'm going to hate everything else. But it's saying, don't make the things of this world, the desires of this world, don't make them primary. Don't make them your God, because God is the only one that is complete. And what I mean by this is that God is all that we need. He is all that the world needs. It's it. The, the fulfillment of our spiritual and physical natures can be completely satisfied by God. You don't need God plus anything else. And this is both an amazing thought to me, but it's a challenging thought as well. Because when somebody tells me, you don't need God, you don't need anything else, I go, but I really like my wife. I really like my kids. I really like things about my life. So does that mean that I abandon them and focus completely on God? Does it mean that I forget my friends? I don't seek any other. I just spend all my time in prayer and Bible study. And, you know, anytime I can come to a church service, I'm going to come. And that's all I'm going to focus on. You know, these other things bring me joy in my life. And if he's all I need, then why do I seem still to have these desires for other relationships and other goals in my life? Do I need to stop desiring these things? Should I feel guilty when something or someone else brings me pleasure other than God? I had a chance to be in Los Angeles this week for a conference. And one afternoon, we got to drive up to Malibu. If you've never gotten to drive up there, it's special creation of God. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. As I drive it up there, I'm thinking, I desire a house on the beach in Malibu. Like, I'm like, yes, Lord, I feel it. Like, if you want to provide, like, like, am I a wicked person for desiring that? You know what I mean? Are we, are, when we see things and we want things, does that mean, oh my gosh, I'm off track. I should get my mind and stop saying, I want that. All I want, God, you are, you are everything to me. And here's the deal. This is exactly the tension as John is talking about in this passage. It's not that God wants you to give up these things. It's that he wants us to first love him and trust him to meet those deepest desires of our life. He isn't asking us to diminish our desires, but instead to look for, to him as the source of complete satisfaction and the fulfillment of of those desires. So it's coming to him and saying, not God, you alone, but God, I trust you to bring the right relationships into my life. I trust you to bring the right resources in my life. I trust you to handle these circumstances in my life. It is looking at our world first through him instead of looking at him through the needs and desires we have of this world. And it's a slight shift, and that's why he's saying don't love the world. Don't make it primary. Instead, love the way of God. And he goes here even to describe how this shows up in your life. And he says there's three things. These desires are in some texts called the lust of the flesh. 
It says, you can tell when you've gotten this out of balance when these begin to show up. And the first one is when the desires of the flesh. And this is our desire to consume. This is what this means, that we see something we want, and we feel that we, it makes me feel good. And so we take it, and we consume it. And for a short period of time, we feel satisfied. But what happens? We get hungry again. It, it satisfies us so short period of time that we are longing for something else very soon. And sometimes even what used to satisfy us, the lust of the flesh that used to satisfy us, don't satisfy us anymore. And we have to do something new and consume something else. And it just creates this consumer mindset of who we are. There's something out there. I want it. I'm going to take it and use it for my purposes alone. And when till that, that need will come back and that want comes back and it's not satisfied and it never lasts. The second thing is, he says the way this shows up in our life is by having the desires of the lust of the eyes. And this, this is not the desire to consume. This is the desire to possess. We see something we want and we take it and make it ours. We stop seeing things as a gift of God or something else or a blessing to us and we see it as mine and we begin to possess it. But once we have it, whatever this thing is, whether it's a thing or a person, whatever it is, when we get it, we realize it's not enough. It isn't enough. Like I, I told you before, like I love my wife. I, I wouldn't want to do life without my wife. But if I, if I get things just backwards and I say, you know, I, I can, God, trust God first to bring these things, then that's the right alignment. But if I put my wife primary, if I put Katie as the primary in my life, I'm going to tell you, there will be days, there will be times when, she can't fulfill my needs. When, I, when things fall short, when she falls short, and I fall short in this relationship. If you remember the movie Jerry Maguire, there's a famous line in that movie where uh, Renee Zellweger tells Tom Cruise, you complete me. If you remember that movie, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, you've done everything. Yeah. That's a great line in the movie. It's unrealistic, though. It's just not true. Like, there is no one person in this world that can complete you. Like, there are people you can be compatible with and people that can inspire you and help you, but you can only be completed by God. And then through that connection with God, these relationships will fall into place. So the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes to consume, to possess. But the third thing he says here, that where this shows up, where we're trusting, loving the world more than him, is in the pride of life. And this is our desire for personal glory. It's our desire to be known, to be recognized, to be, have a claim come our way. And we want this important and the significance. But even that fades over time. And even that is empty. I mean, it lasts for a while, but you still got to go home at night. Still got to get up in the morning and do things. I mean, it's st life still happens. And I really don't how, if, you know how famous that you might get if you're sitting in this room and tomorrow... You're on the news for some good or bad reason, and everybody knows your name. In a few years, your name will be forgotten. You know, maybe while you're alive, but certainly years after your death, your name is forgotten. It's not about creating this story of me. Being complete and understanding that God is complete is understanding that he's writing this broader story that we all get to be a part of. And so when you start seeing these things show up in your life, the desire to consume, the desire to possess, the desire for personal glory. 
then it's helping you understand I am loving the world. I have shifted my focus and the things that I should be putting first, the things of God and his righteousness, understand that he completes me. That's where we're falling short. So the first thing to realize is that righteousness means that God is complete. He is our complete satisfaction. Let God quench your thirst. Let God feed your hunger. Second thing we're going to look at is in verse 21 and 20 through 23 here, and it says this. It says, I write to you not because, and this is a, to me an interesting point here, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the second concept I want you to see here of what righteousness means is to see that God is right. He is right. Now here's what I mean by that is that he is the source of truth, and that source has been revealed to us. It's not hidden from us. Look at what John says here. He isn't writing to reveal some new truth to you. He's telling us that we already know it, that God has shown us, shown it to us. It's this idea that God's truth doesn't have to be discovered. It's not hidden in some cave somewhere. It's not some magic formula that we got to come figure out, and all of a sudden we get this special knowledge from God. He's given it to us. You have access to the full truth and knowledge of God as we abide in him, as we connect with him. It's not got to be discovered. It just has to be put into practice. So how is this truth revealed? It's revealed through the right character of God, that who he is, how he acts. God's truth is not just written down. It has been shown to us through God's interaction throughout creation and throughout history. You know, how God reveals his character becomes the standard by which we judge our own motives and our own actions. Here's what we do. No, we, that sounds like a good thing. Like, yeah, God's standard, I'll compare myself to God. But here's what we do. We usually don't go that direction. Instead of using God's right character as our measuring stick, we find our own way to measure our character. We find a scale that fits us better. We find a, you know, like, I can't measure up to this, so I'm going to find something I can measure up to, and I'm going to feel a lot better about that. It reminded me, I, I love to play basketball when I was growing up. I wasn't quite this tall in high school, but I still enjoyed basketball. Um, but playing on a regular court with guys that were taller than me and much better than me, it wasn't that much fun. Like I would go up and you know, my, shoot a shot and it, you know, be shot down the court the other way. I mean, some guy just block it and you know, it was not fun. I wasn't that good. But you put me on a court with an eight-foot goal instead of a ten-foot goal, I could play in the NBA. I mean, I could do these 360 dunks. I could, like, you know, reverse. I, I was amazing on an eight-foot goal, right? So I just lowered the standard a little bit, and that little lower standard, you know, made me look really, really good. But it still didn't make me eligible to play in the NBA. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like scouts coming to check me out. Like, this dude, if we can get the rules changed to eight feet goals, like, he's our man. But we do that, don't we? We create a different standard. We create a lower standard that we view ourselves by, and we think, I'm good enough. This is good. And we bend the truth. We, we, we hide some of the truth. We say, well, I'll just ignore that part. 
I, I like this part, but I will ignore that part. And here's what Paul reveals, I mean, John reveals here. In verse 21, he said, you know, there is a truth. There, there is truth. There is a right and wrong. There is a just and an unjust. There's an absolute. There are absolutes in our world. There are laws and truths that govern our universe and our lives. And we, we have to either embrace that or we have to try to ignore it. And when we ignore it, it's like playing basketball on eight-foot goal. It's not a real game. And so there are absolute truths. But the second thing he says there, he talks about the Antichrist. He said there will be counterfeits. There will be people who try to create a new scale who try to create a different form of truth, who try to bend the truth, twist the truth to make it more appealing, to make it more accommodating. And instead of living up to the real truth, we live down to the counterfeit truth. We try to make ourselves feel better. He says there's counterfeits. You've got to be careful of them. They'll call it a new way of thinking, but it's really corruption of the truth. And the third thing he says here in the last part of 23, it says denial of the truth doesn't change the fact that it's still truth. Just saying, I don't agree with that. Or I'm not sure about... You know, I can disagree with gravity. If I jump off a building, it's still going to win. You know, I mean, it's, it's... I can, on the way down, I can even be saying, this is not it. I got to, I want to stop before I get there. It's not going to happen, though, right? I mean, it's, I can disagree with it all I want. The truth is still truth. And we do that... Don't we do that all the time with God? We, we take this part... And that part, and we think, I know you said not to go in this direction, but I'm going to go, and I'm just going to act like there's not going to be any consequence. I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to steal, because it's not that big of a deal. Like, it's not a big lie. It's a small lie. I'm not cheating. I'm just you know, not paying this part of my taxes. It's okay. I'm not going to, nobody will know. Whatever it is, I'm not here to give you a list of sins and do's and don'ts. It's just, we know God reveals the truth. Because he's right, and how he has acted sets the standard. And so to remember that he is right. He's complete, and he is right. You know, why do we, why do we even need a standard? Why can't we all just, you know, do what we want to do? Whatever we think is best. Isn't everyone's opinion and viewpoint as valid and important as everyone else's? Why is God so limiting and demanding? Why doesn't he just let me do what I want to do? This sounds like an amazing argument till you become a parent. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, you know, what would my house be like if I just, my kids got to do whatever they wanted to do? Like it'd be burned down at this point, probably. Like our stuff would be not just broken, it would be destroyed because what they want to do, they don't have the knowledge and full understanding. I mean, you see how, imagine our country, our world without laws, without things that govern and give us guidelines. Imagine driving in Manhattan without stoplights and stop signs. It happens sometimes. <laughs> I think that's the way Kenya was when I was there. Like, they were there, but nobody paid any attention to them, and it was crazy. But it's laws give us guidelines and, free, and understanding. And I want you to understand this. We sometimes see these rules, these, this truth, this righteousness as, like, constraining. But true freedom comes when we operate the way we were designed to operate, when we operate within the system that God created us to operate in, that's where true freedom comes. 
that song we sang where it says, you know, my chains are broken. My sin. That following God is not putting on a new set of chains. It's freedom that we are operating. We're doing life the way God created us to do it. That's freedom. The third thing we're going to see is this. So he's complete. He's right. And then verse 27 and 28, it says this. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is as true and no lie, just as it is taught to you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we have made confidence and not shrink from him in shame of his coming. And what we see here, the final idea that we must understand as we embrace this idea of righteousness, is that God's complete, God is right, but he is also just. He's just, which means this. That means that God isn't just right, but he wants wants right for the world. He wants the world to experience righteousness as well. He created us at peace with him and in creation and with other people, and that peace is where justice flourished. When we were at peace with God, when we were ideally at peace with, that's when justice flourishes. It's not when I'm at intimacy with other people. It's when I'm at peace with other people. But when that peace was broken by sin because we fulfilled our desire or we wanted something else, we wanted to set our own rules, when we broke that, we broke the peace and we broke justice. And so what this means is as we embrace this idea that God is complete and God is right, it will not only begin to impact my life, but it will begin to impact how I interact with others and that I'm not just seeking to experience this world for me, but I'm seeking to be an instrument of peace and justice in this world. It will give us a desire for peace to create a new lens by which our perspective, we see the world. So it's not, we don't see the world and say, what can it do for me? We see the world as an opportunity for us to be involved and be pushing forward the peace and justice of God. And he does this, it kind of, he gives us a few things to think about here. He says, one is this, I love this idea that you are anointed for the purpose of peace. Did you catch that where he says, but the anointing that you received, you are actually anointed for the purpose of peace. And anointing was a way that you set someone aside for a calling. He said, you have a purpose. Oftentimes when the apostles called leaders in the church, they would anoint them. Say, you have a purpose. They would anoint them with oil and say, you, there is something specific for you. And God has done the same thing. He said, as my righteousness plays out in your life, you are anointed for the purpose of peace. God isn't calling you to righteousness just for your own sake, but for the sake of renewing peace and justice in this world. But he doesn't just anoint you. I love what God does also. It says here that God equips you with the tools to pursue peace. You see what he said there? He said, you don't even have to be taught. Like, you already know this stuff. You don't have to go to a special seminar. You don't need to go to a class. You don't need to go to another Bible study. You don't even have to hear another sermon on Sunday. You are equipped to be a person of peace. I've given you the tools to do that. As you've experienced grace in your life, go do the same for others. As I've forgiven you, go forgive others. As I have loved you, go love others. I've given you the tools. We don't have to, again, we don't have to go discover these. They're on our belt. They're in our hearts. They're in our hands. Grace 
mercy, peace, compassion. We've experienced all these. We have been recipients of these. Now we need to express these as well. So God equips us. But finally it says here, he doesn't just anoint you for that purpose or equip you, but he unleashes you in this world as an instrument of peace. God's righteousness doesn't make us shrink away from the world. Instead, it causes us to charge into the world to bring peace. You see an area of injustice in your life, in your neighborhood, in your city? It's not enough to step back and go, hmm, that's bad. Somebody should do something about that. You see a place of injustice? You see a place that needs peace brought into it? He says to go, to put yourself there. Bring peace with you. Bring it with you. This isn't someone else's job. It's our primary purpose. The the most shameful action we can have before God is not found in some specific list of sins. Like to stand before God and say, oh, you know, I lied on this day. I did this. I did that. But the most shameful thing instead is to stand before God and know that he equipped you and anointed you to be a person of peace and you did nothing. You did nothing. You took everything that he gave you and you held on to it and didn't share it with other people. Sharing the gospel is not having a set of verses in your head to tell someone how to become a Christian. Sharing the gospel is being an instrument of peace and justice in this world. And as you do that, people will be drawn to the grace and peace and mercy and forgiveness of Christ. And you don't then have to tell them how to become a Christian. They'll pursue God and they will want and desire to have that lifestyle. You know, it isn't enough just to point out these wrongs, as I mentioned earlier, but we're called to do what we can to make these wrongs right, to display the hope of God in the midst of injustice. That's why he says, be salt. If you put salt on food, you're going to taste it. He says, be light. You put light in a dark room, it's going to show up. And he says, be a fragrance. You put on perfume, you put on a scent, you walk in, people smell it. Like find areas of injustice and go be peace. This kind of justice and peace can only happen when we finally realize this amazing fact. No one, there is no one that is better or worse than me. There's no one by their station of life. There's no one by their color of their skin. There's no one by their socioeconomic standing. There's no one by even their understanding of who God is that is better or worse than me. We are created in God's image. And we are called to love all men and all women. Every background, no matter what it is. But when we create distinctions and we determine who is worthy of grace and who is worthy of of mercy, we will never truly be instruments of peace. So my question for you today is this. Would you be willing to submit to the righteousness of God? That's usually not something we're called to submit to, like, you know, submit to God's teaching or this, but would you submit to God's righteousness and doing so realize that we need to submit our desires and understand that he can complete every desire you have in your life? Would you submit your motives and know that he is right and use his standard and not our standard? And would you submit your perspective and start seeing this world and the need for justice and peace the way 
that he does. Let me bow your head and close your eyes with me.